Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we continue our series, After the Protest, What's Next Atlanta? Today's discussion, what makes for a productive protest and an effective leader. Any leader of a demonstration, they are responsible for the immediate safety of the people that they are organizing with. We don't use people as pawns. We don't use people as puppets in our quest for freedom and liberation. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, as always, the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. As of 5 p.m. yesterday, there are 48,207 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,102, and there are 8,334 hospitalized. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, again, as of 5 p.m. yesterday. Meanwhile, demonstrators gathered for a fifth night of protests in Atlanta yesterday. As of midnight last night, Atlanta police reported 50 arrests. At a press conference, Governor Brian Kemp said he would do, quote, whatever is necessary to keep the peace in Georgia. I am outraged that Georgians are now in arms way because some are using this moment to riot, to loot, and to compromise the safety of our citizenry. I will tell you that violence and destruction is unacceptable. Governor Kemp added he supports the right to peacefully protest, but added he's been in touch with local organizers to help determine which groups might be inciting violence. And we should note, according to APD, many of the protests have not escalated to the level that took place late last Friday night into Saturday. And now an update regarding the Atlanta police officers involved in the tasing and dragging of two AUC students out of a car Saturday night. The news footage captured 20-year-old Spelman College student Tanaya Pilgrim and 22-year-old Morehouse College student Messiah Young drew national attention and criticism, including from Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. We understand that our officers are working very long hours under an enormous amount of stress. But we also understand um, that the use of excessive force is never acceptable. And to that note, Mayor Bottoms fired some of the officers and other officers have been placed on desk duty. But now six officers face charges ranging from aggravated assault, criminal damage to property and simple battery. And joining me now to discuss all of this is Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard. Day Howard, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, glad to be here. In the press conference, you stated that the two students, you said they were, quote, extremely innocent. And so my question is, Mr. Howard, is that due to the news footage alone or through additional information you all were able to gather? Uh, I, I made the comment based upon the human nature of the two 
human beings. Uh, mm -hmm. They were not callous or mean, but when you spoke with them, you, you really got a impression of someone who was well-mannered. They were innocent, surprised by the process. They were terrified, but their expectations were that they would be treated differently. And so that's why we, we use the phrase innocence because even when um, Mr. Young showed up in court, after all that he's gone through, when the charges were read to him, his first impression was, hey, you, you must have gotten the wrong guy. That's how innocent they were. And that's why we said that they were innocent almost to the point of being naive. And I apologize to them later on for using that terminology. But they were just, I guess what you would say, is some very nice kids. D. Howard, when did you first view this footage and what did you make of it? I saw it on uh, Sunday evening. I was having a conversation with the dean at uh, Morehouse and got a chance to see it then. And the first time that I saw it, I, I couldn't believe it. First of all, I didn't want to believe that it occurred in my community, in my county, in my city, uh, that we were treating people in that way. And, uh, and when I saw the body of Mr. Young shaking from the, the tasers, and then when it swung around to the other side to, to see that young lady uh, 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 shaking and trembling and crying, and even though I've probably watched it a dozen times when I saw it again yesterday, it, it still has a profound effect. And um, it, it just said that, Mr. D.A., you, you know, you need to do something. You said you were surprised that this was taking place in your county. You've been district attorney since you were elected in 1996. Perhaps it's because you saw, because there was video footage of this. Think about if you could see all of the video footage of some of these violent encounters between citizens and law enforcement, not just APD, but law enforcement in general. Well, you, you're exactly right, uh, because one of the things that we've been talking about for years, and I'm hoping that during this discussion of George Floyd and the other deaths in our country, that we are talking about solutions. Well, I believe that one of the things that has to happen in this country is that there has to be legislation that will require every police officer who has contact or who makes an arrest of someone from the public to use and operate a body cam. And if they operate in a vehicle, they ought to have a dash cam. Uh, you are absolutely right. Far had it not been far this dash cam or body cam information, we would not have been able to proceed, but it also would have deprived the public of the opportunity to see what really happened. Six officers are being charged, each with various counts. How confident are you that some convictions will come out of this? Well, we, we never um, try to project or predict a conviction but uh, we simply look at the evidence and the evidence uh, of what they did was really overwhelming. It's there, it's clear on the videotape. And I think that if a reasonable person uh, gets an opportunity to see it, then I think a reasonable person would take the appropriate steps. D.A. Howard, which officer has the most serious charge here? 
Uh, I believe that probably the most serious charges have to do with the aggravated battery or injuries caused uh, to uh, Messiah Young, and then the uh, charges that involve actually tasering and using the taser on uh, Miss Gilliam uh, and Miss Pilgrim, excuse me, and Mr. Young. So those three uh, categories would be the most serious charges, aggravated assault mm -hmm. for the tasering and aggravated battery for the injuries. The officers have until the end of day Friday to turn themselves in, but have you heard from any of them or their legal representation? Uh, I have heard indirectly that two of the officers uh, plan to turn themselves in the day. Uh, I don't expect that we would have any problem uh, with them turning themselves in. I suspect that they'll all turn themselves in by Friday uh, at the end of the day. Albeit you have not had a chance to speak with them in more detail along with their attorneys, but could plea deals be compromised here? Would you offer plea deals? Well, what we do is uh, once the case is um, presented to a grand jury and uh, once the case is indicted, uh, we always entertain conversations uh, with defense counsel. Um, in our last uh, two uh, police cases mm -hmm. uh, uh, that we uh, disposed of just this past year, both of the police officers entered guilty pleas. Uh, one for an aggravated assault that involved the beating and one officer for an aggravated assault that involved the shooting. Uh, so it would not be surprising to me, based upon the evidence, that in this case, we've got a videotape mm -hmm. that there might be uh, some plea on behalf of these officers. We all know there are still protests occurring in the city as well as throughout the nation related to the recent police killings of unarmed black folks. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, and of course, so many more, Dave Howard. And you know, prosecutors have also come under fire due to what some say are lack of charges, let alone convictions. So prosecutors making the charging decisions, some say that can have an impact on reforms within law enforcement. If these entities know that excessive use of force or deadly force will be met with swift action, convictions, tough sentences, that that could actually be positive in reforms and how law enforcement interacts with its citizens. What's your take on that and the role that you all can play in that? Well, Rose, I believe you are absolutely right. Uh, I think that the prosecutor is, in fact, the most important part of this whole uh, equation uh, involving police shootings and police misconduct because it is the prosecutor who I believe will set the tone for the officers and for the community indicating what can and what is permissible. Uh, I believe that across the country, uh, the, 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 the data shows that prosecutors have been almost invisible. Uh, 10,000 killings by the police, only 153 of those officers charged that says invisibility. I believe that's why so many people in our community, particularly young people, believe that when these incidents happen, that there is going to be no consequence. And that responsibility lies on the prosecutors. So one of the things that I am recommending uh, that we look to change right now 
is a law that would give the prosecutor the ability to charge an officer without going to a grand jury. We could save a lot of time. We can move forward rapidly with these cases. These are very important cases. In fact, I think it's one of the most important things that any prosecutor can do. That's why I don't believe we should be farming the cases to independent prosecutors. If you're a prosecutor in that jurisdiction, if you cannot prosecute policemen, then you need to get another job. That's the most important thing prosecutors should do. I think we should be able to charge officers without the involvement of a grand jury. It would move the process a lot faster. Uh, we could eliminate part of what's going on in Minnesota right now. And uh, I'm hoping that when people start to look at long-term solutions, that this is one of the things that we discuss. And you're talking about state legislation, to be clear, correct? That's correct, yes. You think that something like that can even make it out of the Georgia General Assembly? Well, this is the way that I look at it. Uh, I think back to the days with Dr. King when we, uh, when people talked about voting rights acts, civil rights acts, I guess many people thought it would never happen, it would never change. But when you look at the response, uh, not only in this country, but all over the world, when you look at the number of people that are involved in this process, uh, in the protests that are going on, I think it indicates that we are going to see some change in this country. And something has got to change. I don't think people have got the appetite to keep having uh, cases uh, with Mr. Arbery and Mrs. Breonna Taylor and then the case with George Floyd. I think people are saying this has got to stop. And one of the ways that we can stop it is to change the laws and change the policy. Well, D.A. Howard, based on what you just said, because this August will mark four years since the shooting death of Jamarian Robinson, shot 59 times, leaving 76 wounds. And this was due to a U.S. Marshal's regional task force serving an arrest on behalf of the Atlanta Police Department. This case is still in your office, correct? That's correct. No indictments, correct? No charges? No, that's correct. Someone listening says it's almost four years. And here is a case that exemplifies everything you just talked about. So when will the justice come or how can the justice come for Jamarian Robinson's family? Well, in fact, I spoke with Mrs. Robinson uh, last night and uh, we had planned to present the case before the virus happened. So if it had not been for the virus, the case would have already taken place. Mm -hmm. But Jamarian, Jamarian Robinson's case is an excellent example of some of the changes that must be made in our country. That case involved the shooting of Jamarian Robinson, shot 59 times, 16 officers involved, and not one, one video tape of what happened uh, worn by those officers. The only videotape of this incident uh, was provided to us by one of the residents of the apartment complex. Mm -hmm. Not only is it that we could not get any video surveillance of what happened, uh, once the incident was over, we then tried to interview the 16 officers. To this date, almost four years later, uh, we've been fighting with the Justice Department. We've had to file a federal lawsuit to make this happen. 
we have only had the opportunity to speak with three of the officers, and those three officers were on the outside of the room and not on the inside of the room. So we have had to go back and try to reconstruct the shooting, and these officers fired 94 times. And we've been trying to reconstruct it without the benefit of any video or any testimony or any interviews from any of the people on the inside. We have got to change our laws so that this won't happen again. And one of the first things that we can do is to make sure that every officer is wearing a body cam and that every vehicle is equipped with a dash cam. You've been in Fulton County's district attorney since being elected in 1996, as I mentioned. You're seeking a seventh term. If there's any local elected official whose citizens expect to be ethical, expect quality leadership and trust, it's your office. You are facing some serious allegations. This is not an opportunity for you to campaign, but it's an opportunity for you to address questions that people email me about. What is District Attorney Paul Howard doing? He's been here for so long. What can he point to that would make me want to reelect him? Well, I would ask that the voters and the citizens would look at uh, my 27 years in office, four years as Solicitor General, three years as District Attorney, to look at what had happened beforehand with respect to these kinds of allegations that arose during this election period. In fact, the two federal lawsuit allegations mm-hmm. uh, that were filed in the, I believe in the last 45 days. Uh, I said from the very beginning regarding the ethics complaints that these involve administrative matters, administrative matters that have to do with filing certain documents. Uh, I, I think the public is gonna find out that we file those documents. We had a legal disagreement as to the definition of what should be filed. Uh, But as I've said from the very beginning, that um, when the final process is over with, if all of the facts are followed, if someone is led by the data, then I am confident that I will be fully exonerated. And if I thought otherwise, I would not even have sought reelection because I agree with you that the office is a place that demands someone who is a person of integrity and also someone who is not afraid to make a tough decision, uh, to make a tough decision like the decision involved in the charging of these police officers. And so that's why I would ask Fulton County citizens to put me back in office again. But you're in the midst, as you mentioned, there's a GBI investigation. There are the allegations of sexual harassment. Again, this goes back to citizens being able to have confidence and trust in a position that is so crucial to our to everyone's quality of life everyday quality of life if these investigations show otherwise would you be willing to voluntarily leave office if i thought that the investigations uh showed that uh we did something that was wrong Uh, something that merited uh, that you should be removed, then I would be the first one to do so. Uh, But as I said, I am confident uh, that uh, I will be exonerated. Otherwise, I I wouldn't have sought office. As it relates to the two AUC students, uh, 
Tanaya and Messiah, what did you tell them that you can share about your commitment to this case? Well, after I had a chance to speak with them, I had an opportunity to speak with the aunt of Mrs. Kilgrim and her uncle and one of her other relatives. Had a chance to speak with um, both of the parents of um, uh, Messiah Young. And what I said to them, first of all, that I was sorry, mm-hmm. uh, that I apologized on behalf of the citizens of Fulton County and the citizens of Atlanta because what happened to them is not the way that we expect anyone to be treated in our community. And we certainly didn't expect uh, for our young people, and I would consider them literally children, to be treated in this way. So first of all, I apologize. Mm -hmm. I also said to them that I was proud of the way that they conducted themselves, even after they were taken into custody during all of the turmoil. Uh, they were still, uh, uh, they were as cooperative uh, as you could find. And I was very proud of them because I think they represented their age group and their parents and the universities they attended well. And what I promised them is that uh, as a result of what would happen, as a result of what happened to them, that the Fulton DA's office would stand with them and that we would do everything within our power to make sure that the people responsible were held accountable. Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. And please invite us again, particularly, Rose, when we start to put together uh, uh, discussions about long-term solutions, Mm -hmm. long-term changes in our laws and our policies regarding police misconduct. I hope that you would invite me back to take part in that discussion. You're invited. If you're the DA, you're invited. And anybody else that needs to be at that table, we always say that, right? Get everybody at the table. (laughs) Yeah. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The images are everywhere. We've seen them. Atlanta, cities around the world, saw protests in response to the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Last Friday, we know, as protests in the city of Atlanta intensified, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms called on Atlantans to go home. I wear this each and every day, and I pray over my children each and every day. So what I see happening on the streets of Atlanta is not Atlanta. This is not a protest. This is not in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. This is chaos. Now, what Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom saw as chaos, some see it as productive protesting 
Well, what makes a productive protest? And what steps are being taken to equip a new generation of activists, organizers, protesters with the tools they need. As our conversation continues today, I'm joined by Devin Barrington Ward, community organizer and managing director for the Black Futurist Group. Devin, welcome to the program. I really appreciate it. Hey, Rose. It's great to be back on with you. I just want to begin with getting your reflection, Devin, on everything that's been taking place so far through your lens. You know, um, I feel a deep heaviness, but I also feel inspired um, because people, the heaviness is the continued um, targeting of Black lives in this country, the continued violence um, at the hands of state actors like the police and other law enforcement agencies that continue to brutalize and kill Black people in our streets. I think about George Floyd, I think about Breonna Taylor. I think about Ahmaud Arbery. I think about DeAndre Phillips. I think about Jimmy Atkinson. And the names go on and on and on. But where I am inspired is despite Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms' assessment, and I respectfully disagree, I believe that the uprisings that are taking place throughout the country and even across the world is what we need in order to have the future that we all deserve and envision, a future that's grounded in peace, a future that is grounded in liberation, and a future that is grounded in the joy of an oppressed people. And in order to have those things, we have to fight for it. And sometimes those fights require for us to take it to the streets. Taking it to the streets. Mm -hmm. What's your take when someone says, but when these protests and rallies turn to a clash with the police or whomever law enforcement, then the mission of the protest seems to dissolve. Well, I think that the officials oftentimes, are, I have not seen the mayor out actually protesting um, and joining the young people who have taken to the streets across this city and said no more. And if she had taken to the streets like how State Representative Park Cannon State Representative Erica Thomas, Councilmember Antonio Brown, and others have, um, Councilmember Matt Westmoreland, and others have, they would see, she would see, that oftentimes the aggression and the escalation is coming from law enforcement. There are a variety of agencies that are involved in the response to peaceful protesters on the street. Mm -hmm. And each agency, while they are attached to the police state, each of them uh, have their own culture. I think a lot of people were not necessarily surprised, but disappointed to see that APD on Saturday dragged two innocent students from the AUC out of their vehicles, tased them, broke glass slash tires. And I do want to commend the mayor. She took immediate action to remove those officers because how could you respond in such a manner when people are literally in the streets because of police aggression and brutality? With that being said, I co-led a protest in front of the governor's mansion this past Saturday, mm -hmm. where we demanded statewide police brutality legislation and hate crimes legislation. And I can tell you from firsthand account that the aggression and the escalation of tactics came from the hands of highway patrol. They shot someone in the face with a rubber bullet. What was also disappointing was that while many of the news agencies that were there reported and did say that we were a peaceful protest, there was one news outlet 
that led with a headline saying that we pelted guards at the governor's mansion with rocks. And that just isn't true. Um, and so I think we have to separate fact from fiction. Mm-hmm. And we have to recognize that when people are oppressed and that when people are feel like they're not being heard, and when that response is met with the mobilization of police resources, met with the mobilization of the National Guard, met with the mobilization of the Georgia Highway Patrol, and then that mobilization is intensified by law enforcement, where they are escalating, where they are intentionally antagonizing peaceful protesters. The other thing that was really interesting was that the majority, uh, while it was a multicultural crowd, there was a significant amount of white folks that were out there who were protesting as well. And I think it was a lot of the response that we got back after the protest um, was that myself and other co-leaders from some of the white folks who attended was that they were very clear that the aggression was not coming from us, but that the aggression came at the hands of law enforcement. And literally the law enforcement did not de-escalate until we encouraged strongly encouraged the white protesters that had joined us to put their bodies on the line to serve as human shields against the black folks and the people of color from law enforcement. Let's back up for a moment because part of today's conversation is about the diagram of a protest and that includes allies and allied groups. When your organization is going to align itself with another group for a protest or a rally, what have you. Do you have specific criteria or concerns that you have that you want the other group to know about? Basically a do's and don'ts. This is what we want to do. This is what we don't want to do. Because as you know, Devin, we've been hearing reports that there was some, quote, outside group that came in, especially on Friday, with Mm -hmm. a different agenda. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on that? Yeah, my take on that is um, protests uh, oftentimes do need to be organized, um, but a lot of times they are not. There are multiple groups that are typically aligned that converge on a particular space that is important and that serves as the backdrop. For example, the governor's mansion, and we have very specific demands for the governor across these multiple groups and organizations that converged on the governor's mansion on Saturday. When we are there, some do's and don'ts you definitely you know want to find out who are the folks that are co-leading and that are serving and providing instruction because oftentimes we have to engage in different formations and movements so that we aren't unnecessarily clashing with law enforcement but that we also are able to stand in our full dignity as citizens and peacefully protest in addition to that you also want to have someone who ideally is going to be able to communicate with someone from law enforcement to find out what they are planning and what their escalation of tactics are going to be and almost try and serve as a negotiator um, to ensure that harm is not brought to the people who are outside protesting. So you make it known, if you have a contact with the Atlanta Police Department, you're telling me you make it known that we are planning a protest. You make that known ahead of time? Some folks do that. Other folks, because for many of us, we don't necessarily want to give law enforcement a heads up to our peaceful protest plans. The point of a protest is to disrupt Mm -hmm. uh, the peace. We don't just say no justice, no peace as a chant. It is to put your body on the line to stop business as usual so that the powers that be can see and can be inconvenienced enough to make the reforms. 
but because we were literally occupying the streets peacefully, they decided that their, their remedy for that was to gas us. And so once it was clear that they were going to move in that direction, you know, we already have folks that are dealing with enough complications as it pertains to COVID-19. And so we didn't want to add an additional layer on that by folks potentially being brutalized by the police with tear gas and the highway patrol was in full riot gear with batons and they were ready to use them. Devin, you're talking about a peaceful protest with a mission in mind to disrupt, but not destroy or correct. be destructive, correct? Correct. Congressman John Lewis, of course, you we all know who he is, said, yep. quote, Rioting, looting, and burning is not the way. Organize, demonstrate, sit in, stand up, vote. Be constructive, not destructive. History has Mm -hmm. proven time and again that nonviolent, peaceful protest is the way to achieve the justice and equality that we all deserve, close quote. You have any, you have any, you have any, you take issue with any of that? I would, I would say that it is not a full scope of history. We're at a time where young leaders like myself are coming up You know, I have several photos with Congressman Lewis, have met him numerous times, have been a part of meetings. He's even come to um, one of my first protests that I organized when I was 22 years old here in the city of Atlanta to respond to violence and towards Black LGBTQ people in the city. With that being said, as I bring up Black LGBTQ people, we are in June, which is Pride Month. Mm -hmm. Pride Month was started with a riot. Marsha P. Johnson, who we herald, a Black trans woman, who threw the first brick at the Stonewall Inn, uh, started a riot, which led to um, Pride Month and more freedoms um, and liberation for LGBTQ people. That is something that is that the the Stonewall Inn is seen as a national monument. Mm -hmm. President Obama has um, honored those riots because they recognize that there was a riot is also, let's also quote some, um, you know, black leaders. Dr. King said a riot is the is the voice of an unheard people, is the language of an unheard people. And so I don't believe in uh, looting. I don't believe in rioting. We also have to recognize that when people are rioting, why are they rioting? Mm-hmm. Why are they feeling like they have to resort to these tactics? And oftentimes it's because the leadership is tone deaf to the very clear demands that people want. One of the things that is... I think a misconception Mm -hmm. is that the young people in the street don't have clear demands. While some of the young people in the street don't have clear demands, many of the young people in the street do have clear demands. And the ones who don't necessarily have clear demands, when they came down there, um, they came down there because they knew something was wrong, they knew they needed to be there, and they learned what the clear demands are. And I also want to, Devin, because you and I have had many conversations, I want to get into this because I've been hearing folks use that that quote by Dr. King. But I also think, Devin, that people need to go back, do a little history and read the entire context of that quote, because I'm asking this because some people say that there is a disconnect in the generations in terms of understanding the diagram of a productive protest. Disruption is good. Destruction is not which you have admitted to. Yep. But can you have a have a productive protest as part of a bigger strategy? And when things turn ugly, you, you have your folks retreat as best they can. Is that an option you would want to happen 
as opposed Most certainly. to... I mean, yeah. that's what we did on Saturday. At the you told your group saw, to leave, I believe. We told folks to leave. We were very clear on that because I can't manage, um, and no leader of a protest can manage uh, how people will uh, personally react to aggression from law enforcement. You know, luckily, things could have went left as soon as Highway Patrol shot that rubber bullet at a person that was literally on the sidewalk across the street from them. Cars were still driving by. Mm -hmm. At that point, we hadn't obstructed traffic. And so to see that level of aggression, to see people being arrested because they stepped off the sidewalk with a drum that they were just trying, that was a little heavy, Mm -hmm. and that led to someone's arrest. At the point where we saw that, and, and as the protests continued, that the police were intent on using tear gas to clear us out, Mm -hmm. we did decide to leave Mm -hmm. um, because my personal politics and the politics that I encourage is that we can engage in disruption. We can shut it down. We can stop business as usual in the city without having to engage in violent tactics. Any leader of a demonstration also has to recognize that they are responsible for the safety, the immediate safety of the people that they are organizing with. And so we don't use people as pawns. We don't use people as, you know, puppets in our quest for freedom and liberation. We recognize that there are human bodies, people, souls that are out there with us in the streets. And we want them to be able to go home. And we want them to be able to go home not maimed. We want them to be able to go home not traumatized by police violence, but we want them to be able to go home inspired. We want them to be able to go home with a certain level of pride in the activities that they engaged in. How do you measure a productive protest? Is it, can you not measure it in real time because you have to wait and see if something comes out of it in terms of policy changes or what have you? Well, I think you measure it. There are incremental ways that you measure it. I think the first like ground floor level is like, you know, were were the demands clear? Um, Were people organized? Did people understand why they were out there? Did the chance that we use energize the crowd? Were there people out there registering folks to vote? Were there movement candidates out there, you know, letting people know that you can support their different efforts or whatever the case may be? Or or were there different organizations out there where people can get plugged in so that they can continue this work? That's kind of the ground level. And then also, you know, were people, were our folks safe? You know, did anyone get harmed by the police? Was our protest infiltrated by outside forces that had, you know, nefarious intentions? So that's Mm kind of like the ground floor level of how you immediately assess whether or not your protest was successful. When we started this conversation and I asked you to reflect on what's been taking place since last Friday, what has been something personal for you throughout all this? (sighs) What I have learned, and that was a really deep sigh, what I have learned, um, I've learned a couple of things. One of the things that I've learned, which is a disappointing thing to learn, but I believe it is also something that we can shift, is that there is uh, there is some facade around Atlanta being the Black Mecca. And the reason why I say that is because um, oftentimes I believe that we lean on our civil rights history And we lean on the fact that many legends in the civil rights movement have called Atlanta home. And we oftentimes use that history as a way to ignore the needs of today. 
as a way to suppress uh, the voices of young people. And the reason why I say that is because in a city where we have had black mayors, where we have a lot of members of the state legislature who are black, um, but in this black city with black representation, we don't have a black politic. We don't have a politic that is grounded in social justice. And while many organizations like Black Futurist Group, Solutions Not Punishment Collaborative, Women on the Rise, Racial Justice Action Center have done the work to hold Atlanta accountable to live up to the potential of what we could be, it is disappointing that oftentimes many of the elected officials in this city don't prioritize that unless we make them do that, that that is not their natural posture. And that is further indicated by the fact that the anger of residents in the city was not met with immediate policy reforms like, you know, the reinstatement of the Citizens Review Board, mm -hmm. pulling money from divesting from police departments and using those resources to invest in community and the community initiatives that can keep us safe and that build power for people and wealth. The city responded with the mobilization of more police, with the mobilization of the National Guard, with the mobilization of military-like resources, right? And instead of mobilizing policy reforms. Do you agree with the decision that because of the, the actions of maybe not all who were involved or not involved in the protests, because people get mad when you say either it was or wasn't, but the actions that occurred, breaking windows, busting out windows, looting, going up to whether it was Buckhead or, or Greenbrier. I don't think anybody went to Greenbrier, but I don't know. Those <laughs> actions are to be met with law enforcement because they're breaking the law. Mm -hmm. What's your response to that? The action that the mayor took and Governor Kemp, who said that he deployed the National Guard on behalf, a request of Mayor Bottoms because of what was taking place Friday night and early Saturday morning. I do, because the majority of the people in the protest were peaceful. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that it takes 5,000 National Guard troops to guard windows, that it takes 5,000 National Guard troops to ensure that the few um, in the crowd um, are not engaging in the type of behavior that um, we deem as criminal. Now, how do you um, define few, Devin? Right. So let me put it this way. Out of the protests that we had at the governor's mansion, which mm -hmm. was a peaceful protest, there mm -hmm. were a thousand people out there, mm -hmm. right? Um, while our protests remain peaceful, I don't believe that if five or six people, because it's never the entirety of the crowd, it's mm -hmm. never the majority of the people that are out there protesting. It's just not. Uh, the majority of people in the city don't break windows. The majority of people in this city don't vandalize. The majority of the people in the city don't engage in what we deem as criminal behavior. Whether or not we are in a period of uprisings or if we're in a period of relative peace and calm. Um, and so with that being said, you don't mobilize 5,000 troops for a few folks out of the crowd that are engaging in behavior that is not constructive. And you're talking about Saturday because... I'm talking about Saturday. Okay, Saturday. Um, in, yes, Saturday. And finally, Devin, is a question everyone this week will get. What's next, Atlanta? What, what is you? next? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think uh, that question is up to the mayor and the governor 
and many of the people who are responsible for the very clear policy demands that the people are making in the streets. I will be the first one to tell folks, hey, we're, getting, we're making some progress. I think it's time to change up our tactics. I think it's time that we occupy and take a new posture. But at this moment, people are still in the streets because they recognize that the government has not, is not listening to them. So I believe that question is more appropriate for Governor Kemp um, and for Mayor Bottoms and other political leaders in the city who have the power to make those reforms immediately. Okay. As far as the people, what's next is we will continue to occupy the streets um, peacefully. We will continue to make our righteous outrage heard. We will continue to march. We will continue to ad advocate. We will continue to agitate, 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 in the words of Congressman John Lewis, until peace and liberation um, and freedom is secured for all people. Devin Barrington Ward, community organizer and managing director of the Black Futurist Group. Devin, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Kanavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.